Indeed. 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 So it's six o'clock, Wednesday evening. It's September sixth, two thousand and six. Since uh, January of two thousand and three, at this time, we've been conducting these classes, and I'm not able to say it right at the moment. Come on in and make yourself comfortable as best you can. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure we can work something out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm able to say often, live on the World Wide Web. This is globalization studies. This is money, culture, and globalization. In uh, 2002, I pitched the concept of a new area in uh, the curriculum in the social sciences curriculum, a new area called globalization studies. The word was appearing again and again in the media. It was uh, being used uh, in all sorts of contexts. Uh, I think it's a word that is really up for grabs. The meaning of it is uh, open for debate. And, uh, and yet surely the word uh, met a lot of purposes and agendas. As we were talking about it and thinking about it, the idea emerged, well, why not use the main media of globalization, and definitely the Internet is the main media of globalization. The Internet changes so many things. I would say, as fundamentally, in the landscape of human knowledge and in the, and, and in the basis of human interaction, the Internet is just transforming uh, human relationships so quickly and I, I think also the landscape of human knowledge. So the idea came up, why not use the media of globalization to conduct some kind of discussion, some kind of global discussion. And so uh, that's what we did. We went into a, a room that has now uh, made way for the Wellness Center, P256. It was a beautiful uh, high-tech room Instead of having the screens on the same level, it had the screens above. It was kind of like a kiva, and you you talked uh, up to the group. It was uh, there was much more dimensions to it. In any case, uh, this is the replacement for that. And since uh, 2003, uh, we've been doing these classes, sometimes with video conferences, sometimes not with video conferences, uh, using uh, the uh, I, to me, this is a, a fantastic uh, uh, tool, teaching tool, a document camera. So if we can go to the document camera. Um, so instead of you know holding up a book and saying, "Go get this book," I can uh, I can get very explicit about uh, things like, uh, say, for instance, uh, publishing dates. You can see the. Uh, can see the power of this, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, extent to which it's able to go right in on, on, on different words and texts. So uh, I can make my uh, my notes on uh, on this and use it as a kind of blackboard. I can say, for instance, uh, this book, Lawless World, is one of the uh, required readings. This book and uh, uh, 
the new imperialists. Both books are published in, uh, ninth, uh, in 2006, so they're right up to date. Uh, this one seemed to be sold out when I checked the, the bookstore, but the, uh, we'll talk a bit about these books tonight. Um, but this is in the context of describing uh, the high technology that's available in post-secondary institutions. And I must say, I'm kind of struck by the lack of enthusiasm uh, to uh, use this technology. I don't have a lot of uh, competition to uh, get into this room. It's, um, it's of course, uh, uh, challenging to try to use this technology so that it enhances education and the, and the technology doesn't take over and you become a kind of uh, tool of or an extension of the technology. But the uh, possibility of just of using pictures as, as, you, as you talk, as you relate, uh, not in a PowerPoint, but more in a, in a kind of extemporaneous uh, matter. Um, this culture is called, this course is called Money, Culture, and Globalization. And of course the word culture, we're going to have to talk a lot about what culture is. Um, I picked up this book in uh, Montreal over the summer, uh, Territoire Inconnu. Inca, Inca it's uh, 1850 to 1930, so it's a... Uh, it's a picture book, uh, a book of photographs, photographs of explorers who were going into parts of the world which hadn't been recorded and they were photographing those parts of the world. This uh, is an early picture in, the, in this uh, volume. Uh, this is, a, I think, a very fine picture to sort of illustrate uh, the personal aspect of imperialism and the encounter of people from Europe who were bringing their new technologies like photography, bringing their military powers, bringing their systems of laws, their languages, in some cases like in North America, coming in great numbers as immigrants, as settlers, and, uh, and encountering all kinds of different peoples and, and recording those different peoples. So that process of imperialism that process of empire building, that process resulting in the British Empire, the French Empire, the Portuguese Empire, the uh, Empire of the Netherlands, the Empire of, of uh, the Soviet Union, the Empire of the Ottoman, the Turks. I see this as the great force for globalization over centuries, especially since 1492 when uh, the Western Hemisphere came into the into the cognizance of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Euro-Asia. Up until that time, the Western Hemisphere seems simply to have been outside the consciousness of those who lived in the largest landmass in the world, which is Asia and Europe, congruous with, with Africa. So, of course, many things changed in 1492. Suddenly you had to explain, well, who were these? Were these people on the in the Western Hemisphere? Could they be enslaved? Uh, were they the same species? Were they a different species? So uh, these kind of questions, who's going to own this new territory? Who's going to make the rules for this new territory? I mean, quite incredibly, 
the Vatican donated the Western Hemisphere to the crowns of Castile and Aragon. That's the word that was used, donation. So imagine just negating the thousands of years of experience of humanity, of human history, of indigenous peoples in the Western Hemisphere, and with a stroke of a pen saying that this henceforth will be part of Spain and govern as part of Spain. And Portugal came along and said, well, what about us? So the Vatican relented and said, okay, you two have some part of this. What is the language of Brazil? Portuguese. Goes goes right back to that time. So the uh, this process of uh, exploring the planet and uh, taking control in different ways, and I suppose by photographing the planet, here's uh, some prisoners. Uh, in the way it used to be done. Uh, this is, this is a, this is a big part of, uh, globalization and a big part of globalization is imperialism. So, uh, you know, the, this, this tool, the way to use images and to enhance, uh, what you're talking about with images, uh, and to be able to do it in a more, um, extemporaneous way than say, uh, PowerPoint. Uh, I, I find this this uh, extremely uh, useful teaching device. Just this, just this alone. So, uh, so here is your um, course outline, and uh, this is where you can uh, find me in TH106 until November 1st, C872 after November 1st. My office hours are two to four. Here's the uh, the books. Uh, the 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 reading that you'll be doing will be towards uh, this book review, and out of the book review will come an essay assignment. So book review, then essay assignment. And so. I encourage you to uh, go out immediately and pick up one or two or both of these works. I'm also putting um, the uh, book edited by Arjun Apadurai called The Globalization. That's a recommended reading. And also my own book, uh, The American Empire and the Fourth World, uh, came out in, in paperback in 2005. Uh, it did win the uh, award for the best nonfiction book by an Alberta writer uh, in 2004 when it was in hardback edition. And I'm uh, working on volume two now of uh, this project. The project is known as The Bowl with One Spoon. And volume two uh, is called uh, Earth into Property. Uh, I, think it's going to, I think the subtitle is going to be Aboriginal History and the Making of Global Capitalism. So um, when you look around at the world today and you think, you know, what, what is the big development over, say, these last 500 years? What is uh, the most powerful, pervasive idea that, uh, that organizes a lot of our actions and that infuses our understanding so we act and carry on in relationships in a certain way? 
And I would uh, suggest that that, uh, that concept is property, is the concept that private individuals can uh, acquire property, own property, and uh, the way that property then is, uh, is extended in all kinds of abstract ways, such as in the stock market, such as in commodity futures, such as in insurance, such as in the exchange of commodities and, and the idea that you actually buy and sell different currencies, uh, the way that we uh, construct mortgages, for instance, for our uh, places uh, where we live. And then when you think the uh, concept of extending the, the notion of private ownership of property to corporations so that you... in you build up this idea of the corporation. Now, the corporation had a big part in this imperial expansion. The corporation, such as the East India Company, the English East India Company. Then the Dutch were very important imperialists, very important uh, contributors to the idea of capitalism. And they, uh, the Dutch developed the Dutch East Indies Company. And Indonesia, the country we call Indonesia now, is largely... Uh, a, a, comes out of this history of the colonization of the Dutch East India Company. So this idea that companies can act much like human beings. Companies have, in a sense, rights like human beings. Companies can go to court. Companies can sue or be sued. Companies can enter into contracts. Uh, this, this is a powerful idea, and it extends this idea uh, of, of property. So... Uh, of course, this idea of property, uh, the buying and selling of property, the development of capitalism created um, uh, one of the great movements in history, uh, the view that this was a, a very unjust uh, regime based on a kind of theft of uh, the labor of workers, owners of the means of production in a sense, stole surplus value from, from workers. So this gave rise to uh, a philosophy known as Marxism, named, named after Karl Marx. Marxism uh, uh, was seized upon in, uh, the, in, in Russia. There was a very autocratic uh, government in Russia. And uh, uh, the leader of that movement was called uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. And just before uh, the Tsarist regime of Russia fell to the Bolshevik regime led by Lenin, Lenin uh, wrote this book called Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. So let's be very clear that the reason for the creation of the Soviet Union, which was the biggest country in the world at the time, by far, way bigger than Canada geographically, but the reason for that was a critique of capitalism. And, uh, and now, uh, of course, uh, since 1989, uh, the Soviet Union began to erode. Since 1989, what happened in 1989 that is a very powerful? The Berlin Wall falls. So I think that's a good metaphor for globalization, in a sense. You know, a wall falls, but there is this powerful uh, 
resistance, uh, rejection of capitalism embodied in you know, a highly militarized state, the Soviet Union, suddenly it disappears. And so I think the word globalization it starts to be used in the 1990s, essentially to explain the process whereby these companies are going to extend the range of their capitalist enterprise and uh, transnational companies will become global companies. And there will be a one uh, world economic regime that, uh, that uh, prevails. So I could say, I could tell you that in my view, uh, this work, uh, The New Imperialists, is a work uh, inspired by the concept of Karl Marx, inspired by Marxist ideology, inspired by uh, the idea that capitalist economics produce very uh, clearly defined social classes and economic classes. Uh, if you own capital and your means of survival is to earn profits on your capital, you have a very different position in life than if you don't have any major amounts of capital and all you have to sell is your labor. And so that uh, establishes the basis of a class system that uh, has been uh, the subject of a great amount of social science. And one thing I think that uh, is important to take into account is that uh, Karl Marx was first and foremost a social scientist. He went into the British Library for years and years and years, and he got out the report. The British government was doing many reports about how the Industrial Revolution was affecting was affecting workers, how it was displacing uh, tenant farmers off the land. Uh, Karl Marx was reading these reports. Karl Marx was responding to the Industrial Revolution and uh, trying to figure out what was happening uh, and how to interpret it and account for it. And that approach was largely uh, an approach of the social sciences. So uh, this is um, this work, uh, The New Imperialist, looks at... Um, looks at uh, the new imperialism basically of the United States. And uh, there was an old imperialism involving the creation of uh, the British Empire, the French Empire, the Portuguese Empire. But now there is a different kind of empire. And the heart and soul of that empire is an economic regime known as capitalism, so the authors of this book argue. Um, We'll see that one of the contributors to this is uh, Ellen Makins Wood. And she writes a paper in this book called uh, Democracy as Ideology of Empire. And uh, a phrase that I'll start out with uh, that uh, says in few words uh, the ideas, some of the ideas that I was trying to articulate just then. We are educated to see property as the most fundamental human right and the market as the realm of freedom. If I continue, we're taught to view the state 
as just, uh, as just a necessary evil to sustain the right of property and the free market, we're taught to accept that most social conditions are determined in an economic sphere outside the reach of democracy. We learn to think of the people, not in social terms, as the common people, the working class, or anything to do with popular power, but as a purely uh, political category. We confine democracy to a limited formal political sphere. So this is her, uh, this is her thesis in this article, that essentially we take democracy and we associate it with as narrow a possible sphere of human uh, relationship and human connection. We, um, we uh, put most issues outside the realm of uh, outside the realm of politics and consider most uh, aspects of our life to be determined and rightfully so and legitimately so through this other sphere known as economics. That, that's, uh, that's her thesis. Uh, the main uh, strategy in recent years has been, has been to treat the global capitalist economy as an impersonal natural phenomena and a historical inevitability, an, uh, an idea nicely conveyed by the conventional, conventional notions of globalization. So this, uh, this is to give you some picture of what uh, this text is about. Um, Now, I want you to um, um, think a lot about uh, footnotes. For instance, I mentioned uh, Karl Marx. And Karl Marx, uh, great um, classic works, his central works, and he's very prolific. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of articles. He was a journalist, um, and he, was, um, he organized workers as well. But his uh, classic work, is uh, Das Kapital, there's volume one, and then Frederick Engels, who was kind of his promoter, did uh, a volume two. And I must say, in uh, the American Empire in the Fourth World and now Earth into Property, I kind of have uh, that as a picture, that uh, you know, he, he, he did these two uh, uh, large works, and I, I'm, I'm in the midst of that now. Uh, so, um, so the editor of this volume, the editor of this volume is uh, Colin Moore's uh, introduction, The New Watchdogs. And uh, each of these um, articles is followed by footnotes. So some of you may be in the habit of using footnotes. Some of you may not be. Uh, I find this a very good way to proceed with you're reading, you know, how do you, how do you decide what to go, what, what, what readings to, to find, to identify, to go, to, the go, to go to the bookstore and order and whatnot. Um, so, um, uh, in an ideal world, your essay assignment would flow out of these footnotes. As you do your uh, book review assignment, uh, and you start to develop interest, in the text, and you can follow up your interest through the footnotes. Uh, my hope is that you will develop a, a topic, and I'm this is the third year course. I'm calling upon you to develop the topic for your um, 
for your essay assignment. So two written assignments, book review and essay. And I'm suggesting in the, um, in the uh, book review, at the end of the book review, and it's all laid out in the, in the course outline, that uh, in a page or so you, you propose a topic, you propose uh, a, a, a research essay or an, a, a topic on which to do research and, and to write an essay. And, uh, and suggest some uh, literary sources uh, on which you might base your, your project. And so when you hand in your book review, which I will mark, but then I'll look at your proposal. I won't mark that, but I'll give you some suggestions. I'll, I'll, uh, if I think you're going on a, on a difficult uh, journey, too difficult for, perhaps for this kind of project, I'll, I'll let you know that. Or, maybe suggest some other readings. So um, just to give you a feel for uh, these uh, um, works, let me uh, go through a little bit of uh, uh, page five of Moore's introductory essay. So uh, separate from access to the means of production and then push to the ranks of wage labor. During the rise of English capitalism, this involved the enclosure, that's a very key word in, in the history of uh, private property, in the history of capitalism, uh, the uh, farming in, in, in Europe used to be in a feudal system with uh, tenant farmers sort of sharing some rights to the land with, with the landlords, with the, the senior in New France, with the uh, the, uh, with the uh, the Lord, and then came along, uh, for instance, cattle breeding uh, or sheep breeding, and uh, so you wanted to control uh, your animals. You wanted um, to um, prevent your animals from, say, breeding just haphazardly. You wanted to control uh, the the way reproduction took place. I would say that's the beginning of biotechnology. I mean, biotechnology is a very important frontier of capitalism right now. The idea that you can own blueprints in genetic uh, patterns of life this is a very strange uh, idea and is it's suggestive of just that power of, of, of the idea of private property, especially when you connect it to corporate power. Um, in any case, uh, we're going way back into history and we're saying uh, during the rise of English capitalism, the enclosure of what had been formerly common lands accessible to peasant communities and their conversion into private property concentrated in the hands of a new class of capitalist farmers. And this history marks rights. And this history marks rights. The history of their expropriation is written in the annals of mankind in letters of blood and fire. So, I mean, a big part of the migration of people to the Americas, for instance. They're being pushed off the land through the enclosure movement. The land that was held in common through a kind of complex system of shared rights and responsibilities between lords and pe peasants. Suddenly, uh, with enclosure, you get this, uh, this advancement of the idea of private property. And you get the emergence of... Uh, of Social classes who, who, 
who build up their wealth through the trading of property. And, uh, and this displacement of, of people off the land, says Marx, this is written in blood and fire. This was not just a quiet little thing uh, that went on. Um, uh, David Harvey has shown that primitive accumulation is not a once-and-for-all process restricted to the origins of capitalism, but an ongoing imperative necessary by the need to find new uh, sources and sites of capital accumulation. Accumulation through dispossession involves the colonization, expropriation, and enclosure of pre-existing societal and cultural forms. So here's a, here's a concept, primitive accumulation. Accumulation uh, through dispossession. I guess a classic way to look at that would be to say, well, where are the Indians in relationship to the economic regime of North America or, or, or the Western Hemisphere. Uh, how, you could picture the entire history of the, the Western Hemisphere as a process of bringing lands that had been sort of outside the global economy into the global economy and uh, those lands gradually becoming property, uh, becoming part of the base of capital. And on capital, you can borrow, you can mortgage, you can leverage. Uh, if you have a, a home, you can go to the bank and borrow on your home to start your business. So uh, this um, development of capital and the leverage of capital to expand capital. And then, and then how are you going to uh, give the expanded capital some basis in something real? So, for instance, the... Uh, creation of a whole new range of ownership of capital through through uh, the patenting of genes, through the patenting of DNA. This is, you know, part of a process of expanding the realm of the private and taking uh, pieces of, of what it was once land held in common or property held in common, the common, and making it private property. Uh, <coughs> Predation, fraud, and force are all uh, are all commonly used to privatize privatize such things as water resources, or to enforce proletarianization proletarianization, making people into workers, uh, wage labor. Uh, to these, over the past two decades, have been added an array of financial institutions of dispossession, such as head funds, currency devaluations, asset stripping, asset stripping, and credit and stock manipulations. Uh, let's jump down here. Whatever the means, the outcome has been to unleash a new wave of enclosing the commons. The current round of imperialism, therefore, has its goal has as its goal the export and entrenchment of capitalist social property relations through the world. It is about the universalization of capitalism. So this, this concept of making something universal, I mean, this is, a, this is a powerful concept in its own right. Have you heard, for instance, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948? Uh, you know, big part of this process of globalization has been uh, gradually the recognition that human beings share a great deal in common. I worked for uh, many years in uh, Native American studies. 
and uh, devoted a lot of my uh, scholarly work to making the case that it's important that we acknowledge differences among ourselves and see those differences as an enhancement of our human condition and, and, and embrace those differences and give those differences expression in our parliaments, in our, in our decision-making venues, in the way we uh, apportion resources or do taxation, all kinds of uh, ways we need to think about the importance of difference. But there's also uh, this growing recognition among humanity that we share so much in common. And uh, is there any justification for saying that some kind of human beings are lesser than and deserve less than or don't have the same opportunities as other groups? It's not that long since slavery was uh, a viable institution. The United States was one of the final countries to abolish slavery wasn't abolished in Brazil until 1888. It still continues in some parts of the world. Certainly there is, a, there is a, you know, exploitation of children in, in sex slave labor. Essentially, there's all kinds of ways that slavery is being renewed. Essentially, the export of uh, manufacturing capacity from countries that have uh, trade unions and have organized workforces and have minimal, minimum uh, wage rates, for instance. Uh, the work of manufacturing things is being moved to other parts of the world where, where they don't have those, uh, uh, those levels of protection or those standards of living. And uh, so is uh, slavery uh, a factor in, uh, in Thailand or Cambodia or uh, Guatemala? Um, um, you know, is, is slavery over? Technically, it's over. Uh, it's, it's been declared illegal, but, but is, uh, is that form of human exploitation really something we can put in the past of, of human history? So um, uh, the... Uh, idea that there are certain universals that we need to embrace and uh, that we need to reflect in the way we make our decisions. This, this is a, a powerful um, idea and it's the subject of uh, this work. So I would say uh, Philip Sands is much less uh, ideal, ideological. I don't see any sign that Philip Sands is a, is a Marxist. I don't see a lot of uh, uh, economic perspective or class perspective in his work, but he's looking at the history of international law. And so this idea of international law uh, is, is a pretty um, fragile idea, a new idea. Uh, in a way, it starts to come up, for instance, after 1492, the Vatican thinks, itself, thinks of itself as, a, in, a, in a way, the, the universal church the Vatican, the Roman Catholic religion thinks, well, eventually all people on the planet are going to be Roman Catholics. They might not be Roman Catholics now, but uh, there, there's one God. God has appointed uh, the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, and eventually uh, there's going to be one regime. And so uh, the Pope acts on that basis. The Pope, and it's on that basis that the Pope donates 
what what we now know as the Western Hemisphere to to uh, the court of uh, Castile and Aragon. Why? Because Christopher Columbus was representing that court. And uh, so these new reports came back. He said, I've, I've proven it. The world is round. I'm in India. He thought he was on the outskirts of India, so he named the people he saw Indians, and uh, that uh, remains um, uh, the case to this day, uh, a reflection of a, an enormous case of, of mistaken identity. So uh, uh, this is an extremely informative book, uh, rich, rich with information. Um, and it gives a, a very brief history of, uh, but, but a, a full history, a, a, a rich history, but, but uh, succinct, put it that way, since uh, essentially um, the Atlantic Charter in 1492, uh, in 1492, in 1941, 1941, and this is actually a copy of the Atlantic Charter uh, when uh, World War II began. The uh, fascist regime in Germany uh, started flexing its power, uh, started um, expanding into the East. Clearly, uh, Adolf Hitler had studied the expansion of the United States into the West and uh, saw this as a kind of model. Uh, just as the Anglo-Saxons had pushed West to uh, express their manifest destiny, the view that God had given them the, the, the chosen people of Israel, the Old Testament uh, people, uh, the Puritans, had given uh, a whole continent to that people um, to, uh, to become a new Jerusalem, a new Israel. Uh, Hitler looked at this and said, well, the German people require Lebensraum, living faith. If, if, if that can work in, in, the, in the context of the British Empire or the American expansion into the West. Why not have that uh, apply in uh, in Europe and Eurasia? And uh, in the early days of uh, the Third Reich, the uh, U.S. didn't join um, World War II. Uh, there was a, a strong... Uh, in, uh, alliance, in fact, between the leading uh, capitalists of the United States and the Third Reich. Henry Ford was very uh, quick to recognize Adolf Hitler's potential. Um, Henry Ford, the maker of the Model T Ford, the, the inventor of the assembly line, in a way the most famous uh, entrepreneur, industrial capitalist of, of uh, the United States, um, he, very early on, after the Russian Revolution, like many, said, ah, this is a conspiracy of Jews. Jews are taking over the world. Jews are on the revolutionary side. They're on the capitalist side. This is a conspiracy. He bought a local newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. He hired people, and he produced a stream of articles uh, talking about the Jewish conspiracy. Uh, he produced a book called uh, The International Jew, The World's Biggest Problem. This was taken to Germany, translated into German, and distributed wherever Ford Motor Company uh, products were, were, were distributed. Uh, that was just the beginning of it, because uh, in the United States, the Great Depression, the response was... Uh, 
was the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Franklin Roosevelt was saying, well, we've got to uh, broaden the economy a bit. We've got to infuse the state. We've, we can't just let people starve on the streets. We've got to make some provision for the unemployed. Uh, so uh, there was a, a kind of socialist, um, a limited socialism applied in the United States, which made uh, the richest group in the, in the country very angry. And so they invested, General Motors, Ford, um, IBM, uh, there's a famous book, IBM and the Holocaust. IBM did the data processing uh, to count, well, who's Jewish and where are they? And if you're half Jewish, are you Jewish? If you're quarter Jewish, are you Jewish? Or if you're eighth Jewish, are you Jewish? If you're 32nd Jewish, are you Jewish? Uh, you know, all of this uh, involved great amounts of uh, processing of data, of information. So the IBM company uh, got the contract to uh, essentially do what they now call the Holocaust. Uh, in um, uh, so, so there was this uh, uh, quite a uh, quite a restraint, quite a prohibition in the United States against going to war with uh, the Third Reich. Uh, eventually, when Japan invaded at Pearl Harbor. Uh, that was uh, that was it. Then the United States entered uh, World War II. Uh, many say, well, Roosevelt knew what was coming. There was uh, there was information around that Roosevelt understood that in order to change public opinion, you would have to let an event like that happen. Some look at 9/11 and say, well, there was information around something like that was coming. Uh, but in order to do uh, different uh, initiatives, you would have to have an event of that magnitude to change public opinion. So, uh, so this uh, Atlantic Charter was the um, moment where uh, the United States, actually the, it had not yet declared war, but Roosevelt met with uh, Churchill at Placenta Bay in, in Newfoundland and came up with this document, the Atlantic Charter. The Atlantic Charter is the basis of something called the United Nations. And uh, Roosevelt was a real critic of the British Empire. And uh, just as Wilson in bringing the United States into World War I said, you know, we're not bringing the United States in to back up one empire over the other, Roosevelt uh, had, had the same kind of position. So the uh, uh, Atlantic Charter is an extraordinary document uh, it's a very short document, but it sets out the basic principles of what is to become the United Nations, what is to become uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and what is to become uh, the kind of uh, international system that we that it seemed had 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 become fairly entrenched and uh, fairly uh, established as part of the way humanity was to govern itself. Of course, the great test, the great divide came with the invasion of Iraq because uh, the UN didn't sanction the invasion of Iraq. So uh, there's sort of a question now in the world, is the world going to be governed by the United Nations or the United States, essentially? The United States is the most powerful military power on earth, can say, look, 
who's going to enforce any law on us from outside? Our, you know, we have the instruments of power. We have the instruments of war. Our, um, our culture, our popular culture, whether it be Disneyland or Apple or Google or, you know, we, we clearly, uh, or McDonald's or, we clearly uh, have a, an edge culturally. Uh, why should we accept to be uh, subject to any higher power than our own uh, political will among ourselves? Uh, nevertheless, in the in the Atlantic Charter of, 14, of, of 1941, there was this coming together of of, uh, of, of Roosevelt and Churchill. Uh, and of course, you know, British, the British Empire, the United States comes out of the British Empire. Anglo-America has historically been, in a sense, the, the most powerful uh, agency of globalization. Uh, the English language is a powerful agency of globalization. The whole banking regime, for a time, London was the, the world banking center. Uh, so this old... Uh, uh, polity that had divided in 1776 with a civil war in British North America creating a new polity known as the United States of America kind of comes back together in 1941 and creates the basis of the United Nations. They actually called it the United Nations fighting the Axis. Italy, Japan, and Germany were the Axis and they, they were opposed by the United Nations. The United Nations took on this new uh, personality in 1945 in San Francisco. And so uh, Sands goes on to explain uh, the history of international law, especially since uh, 1941, and then goes on to uh, detail um, uh, Pinochet in London. Just a show of hands, everybody, is the name Pinochet a familiar term? Pinochet. The uh, Salvador Allende, a Marxist uh, president of Chile, was removed uh, and uh, actually um, he killed himself in a, in a U.S.-backed coup in 1973. A new regime was put in place uh, led by a general, General Pinochet. General Pinochet, uh, this was basically a move to demonstrate to the Chileans you're not going to nationalize the, the, the copper industry. It has a very valuable copper industry. Allende was in the process of, of nationalizing it, asserting indigenous ownership of, of, of that resource. He was removed. Pinochet was put in place. Pinochet um, was essentially a fascist. Uh, he protected uh, Chile for free uh, enterprise capitalism and, uh, and um, made uh, several thousand people disappear. It, it, there was a similar episode in Argentina. And, of course, much of the history of Latin America uh, over the last hundred years involved uh, the United States removing uh, left-wing regimes, uh, propping up... Um, conservative regimes who will defend the status quo of property ownership, essentially defend uh, the United Fruit Company, defend uh, the rich property owners from those uh, theorists who are talking about land reform and uh, some sort of uh, equalization to help poor people. 
uh, owned some of the land, for instance. Uh, one of those um, regimes was in Cuba in 1959. Of course, the United States was not able to remove uh, Fidel Castro. Um, I had uh, I went with my 84-year-old father to uh, Cuba this uh, this summer, and uh, it was uh, just as uh, fascinating as as interesting as uh, I as I anticipated. So um, so there was a move to hold Pinochet accountable for. Um, for his violations of the law. The uh, text here, laws like the spider's web, catch the small flies and let, let the large ones uh, go free. So isn't that uh, the uh, pattern with the way law is usually enforced? If you look in most jails, the majority of people you'll find there are relatively poor. And... Uh, and uh, that's the way the law is often enforced. The, the higher you are up in the system, the uh, more the inclination will be to treat, a, to treat such an individual warily if you're a, a law enforcement officer. What if you're a head of state? What if you're um, a head of a, a global corporation? Um, what if you're in, a head of a, an imperial regime? Um, so how often do those individuals um, get held accountable? If you if you murder one person, uh, you know you you quite likely are going to uh, face the consequences. If you murder ten thousand people, where where is the political um, accountability or the legal accountability? The legal accountability. So that's uh, what uh, the Pinochet case was uh, dealing with. Then there is a, an effort to establish a new uh, criminal court, the ICC, a new international court, a good chapter on global warming. Uh, global warming, uh, the Kyoto Protocol uh, is based on a whole background. When you think about uh, the environment and the reality that the way you know the weather is is constructed and the way uh water moves you know through through the environment uh, into the air uh, you know, the, these things don't go according to the borders of countries they're obviously um, global global systems and they require some kind of global response so there is no real global government right now i mean there there is a United Nations, but the United Nations is not, uh, it doesn't have a sovereign base of its own. The United Nations doesn't have its own police force. If the United Nations needs forces to uh, do peacekeeping in, say, South Lebanon, they'll make deals and get individual countries to give access to their, to their soldiers. Um, so, uh, nevertheless, these uh, issues like global warming require some kind of international response, and uh, so so that 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 chapter um, gives a really succinct good account of that. Then uh, the whole question of uh, investment law, uh, the the whole uh, reality that uh, uh, there seems to be a fairly well developed global rule of commerce. Uh, if I 
take, you know, this card and uh, and uh, take it to Bombay, India, or Beijing, China, or Shanghai, China, or Honolulu, put it in the machine, and lo and behold, currency comes out. You know, in another country from my account in Lethbridge. And when, I, when you think about that, surely that demonstrates that there's quite a, a legal regime in place uh, for the movement of money. When you really start to think about, you know, what is money nowadays? I mean, money is essentially digital information now. It's not backed up by any gold standard. Uh, it becomes really abstract to start to, to even think, well, what, what is money now? And, and, and who controls uh, these different uh, transition points in the flow of this digital information? Uh, who has the license to make this type of transition in the flow of information or that type of, uh, of, of, of uh, adjustment? So the reality seems to be that the uh, rule of uh, commerce and trade uh, does get powerful legal protections. And so we could look at the history of the um, General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs after, you know, during the Second World War. In, 19, in 1994, it becomes the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization becomes kind of a symbol of globalization. Uh, in 1999, the students met uh, different protesters, including a number of students, met at Seattle and manifested their uh, anger and their uh, um, sense of exclusion from the World Trade Organization. Our, and the, the position was the World Trade Organization is making decisions which will affect people in a lot of ways. And uh, the people who are being affected don't, don't have a voice. So uh, the whole question of... Uh, uh, the international law of money, of investment, of commerce, and the appearance that that uh, type of uh, interest gets a lot more protection than, say, human rights. So in Rwanda, uh, maybe now in Darfur, in Sudan, uh, people uh, are being eliminated people who are not consistent with the interests of the ruling regime. And is there any way that protection can be rendered to them? Uh, well, it just kind of depends upon uh, the whims of those with the resources and means of, of intervening. So if the United States doesn't feel like it, what is there to compel them? Uh, if Germany doesn't feel like it, what is there to compel them? If France doesn't feel like it, if Great Britain doesn't feel like it, if Canada doesn't feel like it, if it's not politically expedient for some sort of reason. So when it comes to the issue of human rights and maybe even genocide, it's subject to political contingencies. But the rule of money and in the rule of investment, people want protections and there, there is a, a very elaborate system um, and, of course, the system involves, for instance, the creation of new kinds of courts. And sometimes these courts will overrule, say, governments. Uh, and, and what does that mean, then, for the concept of national sovereignty? 
And then, of course, we get into uh, Guantanamo, uh, the black uh, the, the black hole, kicking ass in Iraq, uh, terrorists and uh, torturers. Uh, in the American Empire in the Fourth World, I wrote the prefix just as uh, the invasion of uh, Iraq was starting. And uh, my attention was immediately attracted to Guantanamo Bay. What a curious place to put uh, a base to receive uh, those who were deemed by uh, the United States to be terrorists. By putting it in Guantanamo Bay, uh, the issue was taken out of, so the government thought, the domestic laws of the United States. And uh, the position in the United States, well, no, these are not international prisoners of war. These are illegal combatants. So the effort was to keep them out of the realm of law that has developed with respect to prisoners of war, the international law with respect to prisoners of war, and to keep them out of domestic law. So there is no law at all. And uh, essentially then uh, uh, the U.S. does uh, what it will with individuals. And of course this is, you know, this is a very dramatic uh, position because the idea that uh, if you're going to be um, charged with a crime, the government has to prove it, has to give you an opportunity, has to give the accused an opportunity to tell their side of the story, to call up the evidence, to, that uh, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. All of that has been uh, eliminated uh, with the idea that we're, in, we're at war and this is, uh, if we take a chance, uh, we might just uh, lose another, um, something like the World Trade Center. Um, uh, so th this is a, a subject here. Now, just before I leave these, these works here, um, you can see I mark up my books a lot. And, uh, you know, it, the, the Internet, of course, creates, whole new relationship to literature and uh, no doubt you, know, you, you, you spend a lot of your time on the internet reading off the internet. Um, we're in a society that historically here, the post-secondary institution is sort of the culture of the book and uh, there is something about uh, actually having your words on paper and being able to uh, write up the paper. Uh, so, um, B.B., J. B.B., an assistant attorney general on this topic of torture, uh, he's writing a legal opinion, just to give you a flavor of, 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 of one of these chapters in this book, and uh, writes, uh, where the pain is physical, so this is a government official in the attorney general of the United States office giving a legal uh, opinion. It must be of an intensity akin to that which accompanies serious physical injury, such as death or organ failure. Anything less he implies will not be torture and will be permissible. So if you say, well, we won't do torture, the United States says, well, we won't do torture, but what is torture? So B.B. is saying, well, if it takes you to the point where you're going to die or your our organs are going to stop, that's torture. But anything less than that is not torture. 
This is uh, inc incredible when you think that we're we're at this point in you know the history of human civilization where where we're actually having a debate like this. Uh, this was an excruciating debate for the French in Algeria, for instance, when the Algerians were trying to assert their independence, and France treated Algeria as an extension of France. And of course, you want to find out information from your opponents. Uh, you want to find out if they're going to do sabotage on your on your um, military system. So, so people are tortured, and uh, and then this raises well, how is that ethical? And and you know, in France, a country of the French Revolution, a country that is in is, you know one of the fountainheads of the ideas of liberty and human rights, they were doing torture. Now in the United States, we have this same debate. And it looks to me like what has happened is essentially after the spotlight on Guantanamo Bay, after the spotlight of, on Abu Ghraib, now there are ghost prisons in places like Romania or Poland or Qatar, uh, prisons we've never heard of. And uh, people can be in there without any charge, without any notice to their next of kin or anything. And then the effort is to, you know, try to pump them for information, get them to talk. And torture is the historical way to do that. So this is an old, old question in, in human, in human affairs. And it really gets down deep into the question, well, what, well, what is the rule of law? And, and how far can, uh, do human beings have any inherent right, any inherent protection? Uh, or is it, or do we simply revert back to uh, it's a question of power? If you don't have power, you're subject to the arbitrary assertion of the will of those who do have power. So the whole concept of law, you know, that well, it's not, you know, we're going to break out of this idea that might is right. We're going to uh, put in place procedures, due process, rules. We're going to have a rules-based system. And if that rules-based system is going to be credible, it's going to have to apply to everybody uniformly. And if, if it just applies to people who aren't rich and powerful, if it just applies to poor people, it's not a very credible system. It's really like a political system of political oppression under the guise of law. So to me, this is uh, obviously a big subject. If we're going to talk about globalization, we're going to t look at uh, what kind of globalization are we going to have? Are we going to have a globalization uh, that is governed by some kind of rules? Um, or are we going to have a globalization based on the idea that power is essentially the ultimate base of, of, uh, of governance, of rule, that might is right? I mean, what is civilization? but some kind of uh, uh, accumulated experience of putting some kind of checks on the uh, assertion of power, the unbridled assertion of power. I mean, what, how can you work on your essay and preparing for your career and whatnot if, you know, if, you're, if you're worrying about somebody coming and murdering your parents tonight? Uh, you know, so... so <coughs> So this question of law is, is not just an abstraction. It's 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 a pretty uh, it's a pretty um, basic basic point. Uh, so uh, that gives you an idea then of uh, 
of uh, the, the text that I'm assigning, and I'm pleased to be able to assign you know, brand new books, books that are uh, right up to date about the issues of our day, and, uh, and also have references, footnotes of, of, of brand new books as well, because they're so recent and they've read the recent books. So uh, let's uh, take a break and uh, come back in uh, 15 minutes, uh, 10 minutes.